Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, July 26, 2021, and this is the Defender Bible Study Podcast. This is Chris Johnson, the National Director of Church Partnerships at Lifeline Children's Services, and today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 11. So last week, Blake started us off here in the book of Romans with a good introduction of the book and uh, shared just a little bit about those those first few verses. And then in verses 16 and 17, I got to share about how Paul just proclaimed the beauty of the gospel and um, just kind of all this good news, the good news of the gospel and how it is the power of God to save us. And, um, you know, you would think that maybe when Paul gives this introduction and starts talking about the gospel, that he just would kind of keep going with that theme and keep going with this theme of good news and, and, uh, and joy and happiness and all these things. Uh, but we're going to see today a very stark contrast uh, to that. And, and, and reality, uh, in order for us to really understand the beauty of the gospel, we've got to recognize our need for the gospel. And so Paul has kind of set the table. Of course, we know in the book of Romans, he's going to be, uh, it's just such a, a, just a tremendous book on just understanding the theology of salvation and, and grace and all of that. But in order to, again, to be able to really understand and grasp the blessing of, of God's grace and salvation, we've got to first see our need for a savior. And so really that's Paul's design and plan here uh, as he concludes chapter number one and goes into the beginning of, of chapter, really all the way through chapter two and even into chapter three. Uh, we're going to get to some good news at some point, but right now the news is pretty pretty dark and uh, and, and ominous. But let's look at at this passage today. Uh, in verse seventeen, we we saw that, that Paul says there that the uh, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. But then in verse eighteen, he says that the wrath of God is revealed in the unrighteousness of man. A definition of, of God's wrath: wrath is that in God which stands opposed to man's disobedience stubbornness in resisting the gospel and sin. It manifests itself then in punishing the same. So we're going to see today about the wrath of God. Verse number 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Throughout scripture and throughout history, we see God's wrath is is revealed in different ways. Sometimes it's revealed and carried out just through his direct intervention. Uh, You think of things like him casting Adam and Eve out of the garden. That was a picture of his wrath because of their sin. We see the flood as being an act of his wrath as he uh, just truly, just totally wiped out uh, all of of his creation there. We see the destruction of cities and people. Of course, Sodom and Gomorrah being one that is uh, very popular and, and comes to mind but then others, other cities that he destroyed because of their sin and because out of his wrath. Um, we see the captivity of his people uh, because of their turning away from him and multiple times and, and having to, to be brought back to him and his wrath being poured out through allowing uh, others to conquer them and to keep them captive. Uh, ultimately, the, the the greatest expression of his wrath being poured out is the judgment that he poured out on Christ on the cross and judgment that that ultimately was to pay the price for our sin. And uh, that, of course, being the the, the 
most significant uh, outpouring of his wrath. And we know that there is coming a time when, uh, in the last day, in the day of the Lord, where his wrath will be poured out once again and this coming judgment will take place. So there are these times again where God's wrath is, is revealed and carried out just, just through his direct involvement, his direct engagement of saying, you know what, I've had enough of this and and pouring out his, his wrath on the earth or on individuals or on people groups. But the other way that his wrath is carried out is just through the natural consequences that he has designed to come as a reaction to us, to mankind, violating his law. When he removes himself and and removes his constraint and literally just gives man over to the results of his sin. And this is the the kind of wrath that we see in this passage today. We're going to see as we look and and see this this downward uh, spiral of mankind, we're going to see how God's wrath, basically God just allows mankind to be uh, to receive the consequences of their act of his actions of his sin and and ultimately we see this form of God's wrath being poured out by literally God just pulling himself back and distancing him distancing himself and the term is used over and over that he gave them over to the consequences of their sin so let's read start with verses 18 through the end of chapter one and then we'll talk about that and then we'll we'll hit the first part of chapter two as well Romans 1, beginning of verse number 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they had exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creation the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error and since they did not see it see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they're, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that, they, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, when we think about the good news of the gospel, it can be understood really as a great exchange. We exchange, I exchange my sin for Christ's forgiveness. I exchange my guilt for his freedom. I exchange my pain for his joy, my ultimately my death for his life. But here we see a different type of exchange that moves far away from this good news. We see here in, in verses uh, 24, 25, and in, in, in that in 23, 24, 25, we see that, that, that mankind exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Man says no to, to the, the, the perfect, immortal, uh, unchanging, holy, righteous God, and instead shifts its wor- shifts his worship, shifts his, 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 his love and affection toward other men and animals and creeping things and things that, uh, that pale in comparison to the glory and goodness of God. It says there also that they exchange the truth about God for a lie. We're going to see as we as we walk through this that they they took the truth of God's word, the truth of who God is, and exchanged that. And instead of believing God to be who He is, they embrace their own truth and walk in in really ultimately uh, a lie. And then ultimately they they exchange their worship and their service to the creature rather than the Creator. Instead of worshiping and serving the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, the one who is worthy of worship, instead they begin to worship uh, his, his creation and ultimately uh, things that they create themselves. And, and so we see this, this exchange that's happening um, in, the, in the worst way possible. So much of these things that we read about today is evident in our world today. We said there in verse number 18 that the wrath of God is revealed. And it says that that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. As man suppresses the truth, this means to, to push it down, to ignore it, to turn your back on it, to walk away from it, to keep it concealed. So as man moves deeper into this idea of pushing down and and, and kind of hushing that 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 word within them of that the uh, the truth being revealed in, in creation and in all the different ways that it's revealed and shown, instead of embracing that and living in that. Because of the unrighteousness of man, they suppress that truth. And we're going to see in these verses that whenever man suppresses this truth, there is this downward spiral that takes place. This downward spiral that is ultimately the result of man's unrighteousness and the result of God's wrath poured out on that unrighteousness. So let's walk through this passage and let's see this downward progression. First of all, in verses 18 through 20, in verses 18 through 20, we see that man begins with an understanding of who God is and his worthiness of being worshipped. Mankind begins with an understanding of who God is and God's worthiness of being worshipped. It's interesting that we don't we don't see as looking back over history and looking back even even at this we don't see man starting off worshiping animals starting off worshiping idols starting off worshiping himself and then eventually evolving into worshiping God we don't see that we see the exact opposite that actually takes place mankind as they're created in their in the perfect state before sin mankind recognizes the worthiness of God and worships God and even throughout creation is God throughout history as God has revealed Himself uh, it starts with a with a recognition of that and with a, uh, a recognition that, that he is worthy of, of worship. But but then as he uh, has through his creation revealed himself, as uh, man starts off worshiping him, but then even and even walking with him in the coolness of the garden, garden, but then man begins to believe the lie, right? Believe the lie of the evil one. And instead of worshiping God and recognizing God as creator, recognizing God as worthy, uh, man begins to, to pull away and go their own way to, uh, to reject the, the worship of God. Uh, the Bible tells us all throughout scripture that, that uh, God, the glory of God and the majesty of God is revealed to us through his creation. Psalm number 19 tells us that the heavens declare God's glory. Uh, and we see in this passage that because of the way that God reveals himself, that man is without excuse. Uh, God has revealing, been revealing himself from the beginning and from through his creation. But instead of embracing this revealed God, because of their unrighteousness and unwillingness to walk in truth, man, man suppresses this truth and rejects him. 
So, so first of all, we see that man begins with an understanding of who God is and his worthiness of being worshipped, verses 18 through 20. Then we see in verses 21 through 23, this again, this down, downward spiral. Because man rejects the worship of God, rejects him in his place, man now chooses to ignore the revealed God and rely on his own thinking and his own abilities. Man chooses to ignore the revealed God and rely on his own thinking and his own abilities. Look at verses 21 through 23. Although they knew God, so God had been revealed. God had shown himself. They knew God. They were without excuse. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. And that word futile is the same idea of vanity. It's the same idea of useless, wasteful. They became vain and foolish in their futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. There was, again, this, this downward spiral. The more they rejected Christ, or the more they rejected worship of God, the more they relied on their own thinking, which led them to places of great despair and great darkness. And then it, and then it says in verse 22, they were claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They were not, mankind was not willing to worship God and not willing to give thanks for his blessings. Instead, they begin to focus more on their own thinking. Instead of being worshipers, mankind became philosophers and trying to distinguish and determine things on their own, in their own power and in their own strength. But the thinking of man and the philosophy of man produces, as Paul says here, foolishness and vanity. It's completely wasteful. It's completely to no avail. Built within man is this need to worship something. So as they reject the worship of God, there's this void that is created. And instead, man rejects the worship of God, begins to think on his own. What can I do now? How can I uh, now move forward? And now man begins to worship the own, their own gods, the gods that they have created. Ultimately, it begins with self-worship. Uh, begins with self-worship and looking to man's own ways and own ways of thinking and own way of doing things. Re again, rejecting God. I don't need God. I don't need him in my life. I can figure out things on my own. I can figure out a better way. Again, we can go all the way back to the very first sin. Do you remember when, when Satan came and tempted Eve in the garden? What was it that he said? He, he told her that if she would eat of the fruit, she would be like as a God that she could be equal with God. That's the great lie that's been from the very beginning. It's even what Satan, when he when he fell in heaven, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be equal uh, with Jesus. He wanted to be equal with God. He wanted that place of prominence. And we see this continue on throughout the course of mankind. Uh, of mankind. It leads then to, to worship of self, to worship of others, and then to worship of things that they can touch and feel and things that they can make with their own hands. And again, it's it's easy for us to kind of read this passage and think about this as this is some people that Paul was talking about. But man, don't we so clearly see this in our world today? God is revealed. God is especially in our culture, in our context, uh, and where all of us live. Most of us live. We, we it is so apparent who God is and God's working. He's a he is a, the gospel is accessible. The gospel is available. But mankind chooses to. Uh, ignore that, chooses to turn away from that and instead worship his own gods, worship his own thinking. Uh, this whole idea of, of coming up with, with man's own truth and their own way of doing things that we feel that it is better than God. And so it leads to, uh, to the making of idols in our own image, in our own ways. So we see that Man begins with an understanding of who God is and his worthiness to be worshipped. We see man chooses to ignore the revealed God and rely on his own thinking and abilities. And the next step in this process is now that God is out of the way, man believes that he is able to do whatever he wants without any fear of judgment. 
With God out of the way, man believes that he is able to do whatever he wants without any fear of judgment. Look at verses 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now, this word gave them up, it's the, the Greek word uh, paradidomai. Uh, paradidomai is a judicial term, and it's the idea of someone who has been found guilty uh, of, of breaking the law, being handed over to prison to live out their sentence, to pay their, their price for that. And so this idea, you're guilty, so you're handed over to the prison guard to live out the sentence, uh, which is the result of your crime. This is the same idea here, that God is now, because of the choices of man and because of what uh, he, is, he is striving to live apart from God and without God, God is now handing man over to ultimately suffer the consequences, to live out the sentence that will be produced by this choice to walk away, to turn away from God. He says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Because of man being now given over to his own impurity, to his own, uh, the dishonoring of, a, of his own body, there's no longer any standard. There's no longer any moral code. And man now does whatever feels good to him and whatever brings him worldly pleasure. God gives him over to his lustly desires. And we're going to see that, that ultimately man will face the results of his action. Because now, because he has made this choice, man is now at the center of everything. And it is no longer God's truth that matters, but everyone forms their own truth. God's truth no longer matters, but instead everyone forms their own truth because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Again, we see this so prevalent in our own world today and even within the church today. People that claim to follow Christ, we see this idea and we hear this idea of that's your truth and this is my truth. Uh, I was my my dad was telling me about a, a conversation he had with um, with a pastor, a guy that that, that we kind of grew up in some of the same circles. And this guy was was saying how uh, it, it's it's it, now he he's falling into this thing of well that's this is my Jesus, this is what my Jesus would do, but your Jesus may would do something else. Folks, there's only one Jesus and there's only one truth, and that truth is God's truth. And no matter what we say, no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, when we say that that's your truth, this is my truth, we are walking in the lies of the enemy. We are walking in the lies of Satan. There is one truth, that is God's truth. But again, when we start removing God as the center, when we start turning our back on God as the creator, God as the one who is worthy of worship, God as the one who is in control and in charge, we begin to believe the lies of the devil. And the devil wants us to think that we can set our own course. The devil wants us to think that we can set our own way. And as we see in scripture, we can. God will give us over. There comes a time and a point where God hands us over to our own wickedness. And God hands us over to face the consequences of living in our truth, of living in our perspective, of living in a, in a way that is contrary to his, his truth and a contrary to his word and contrary to his law. Man is now elevated above God. He has elevated himself above God. And he begins to even dishonor his own body. It tells us that he, that he begins to act like an animal that has absolutely no boundaries. We go on to, to verses 26 through 27, and we see that, that mankind leaves the natural use of his own body. Again, he begins to twist and distort God's pure design. 
And man, we see it so, so prevalent. We, we take what God has created as pure and holy and righteous, and we twist that. And man twists and turns and rejects the purity of God's, uh, of God's truth and instead embraces the wickedness and the impurity and the defilement, defiling even his own body to embrace his own way and to elevate himself uh, to the place of God. It's, it's so disheartening to read verses 26 and 27, especially in light of the culture in which we live. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Why is it that God highlights the sin of homosexuality here? Is it is it that that sin's worse than other sins? We're going to see it's it's not. It's this, this is not even the final the final step in this process. But I think the reality is again this sin is such a picture of man taking the good things that God has made. The, the sexual desires that God intends to be between a man and a woman in marriage, uh, the, the beauty of, of the sexual relationship that when it's done the right way and mankind takes what God has created as beautiful and twists it and conforms it. And again, sins not just against others, but sins against his own body and brings defilement on his own body. He even uh, he he leaves this natural use, twists and distorts God's design, and it says there in the in the end of verse number twenty seven that he receives in himself the due penalty for their error. This gives the idea that that they bring shame and reproach upon themselves, that they're willing to live with the consequences of their wickedness. And we have so seen this in the whole uh, idea of the sexual revolution and, and, and seeing things. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that I've seen oftentimes is when you hear conversations and you hear people talk about um, the LGBTQ and other initials, uh, when you hear the, talk about that, that people group, you hear a lot of talk about mental health issues and about depression, about suicide. And the numbers are just astronomical about the, just, just the, really the, the misery that, that comes from living that lifestyle. And of course the world wants to blame those that speak out against uh, that they, the world wants to call those who walk in God's truth, uh, homophobe, bigots, and all those things. And the world wants to blame the outside oppression on that. But the reality is this is the natural effect of, of discarding and turning away from God's natural design. And it's, and it's important that we, again, that we love those that are, that are trapped in this lifestyle, that are living in this place of despair and living this, this life contrary to God's word. But at the same time, our love for them demands that we speak truth. Our love for them demands that we love them enough to point them to the truth of God's word, that we don't just embrace their lifestyle, that we don't just embrace them living in their own truth, but instead we continue to point them to the truth of God's word. So we see that with God out of the way, man believes he is able to do whatever he wants without any fear of judgment. But then the last thing in this part of the chapter, we see God gives man over to live in debauchery and wickedness. There comes a point where God gives man over to live in debauchery and wickedness. We see this in the rest of these verses, the same idea here of God giving them up. He gives them over, the, the ESV says, to a debased mind. New American Standard says a depraved mind. King James says a reprobate mind. We see that in verse number 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
Ultimately, there comes a point where God says, you have chosen to walk in your sin, and I am going to allow you to face the consequences of that sin. I am going to allow you to continue to walk in that wickedness, but you will face the consequences of that. And the consequences of that ultimately get to the point to where that they have a debased mind, a reprobate mind, a depraved mind. It's a wicked mind that cares nothing about what is right or wrong. It is worthless and useless. It is foolish with no comprehension of the consequences of one's actions. They live as if they will never face the consequences. Man is now left to live however he wants. His life is characteristic of everything that is the opposite of God's law, of God's commandments, and of God's moral codes. Look what he says here. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All of these things, as you read through that list, your mind immediately goes to those commands that God has given us to honor our parents, to not kill, to not steal, to not uh, to, to worship God only. And all of those things, we see this is the exact counterfeit of that, the exact opposite of the commands of God. And he tells us that they do these things not in ignorance. This is not, man, they just kind of slipped up and made a mistake. They have made the choice at this point to walk in wickedness. And because they have made that choice, God has now given them over to deal with the consequences of that choice. They now are walking in blatant rebellion against God. And then he concludes the chapter by saying, though though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Not only when, when mankind gets to this point, not only are they embracing this wicked lifestyle contrary to God's law, but they are also celebrating others who join them in their wickedness. They're celebrating others who walk in this same unrighteousness. And again, we see this so clearly in our world today. We just came out of Pride Month. And man, how many corporations and companies and businesses and and stores and different things do we see that just celebrated a life of debauchery, just celebrated a life that's completely contrary to God's word. This is the downward spiral of man. This is the result of of turning our backs on God, of ignoring God, of, of, of resisting him in his truth. You get to the end of chapter one. And you can just imagine as Paul is writing this letter that there are Gentiles reading this. And of course, he is primarily just speaking of those who are pagan and totally against God. But then there also are the Jewish believers that are reading this. And you can almost imagine a little bit of pride kind of stepping up in their heart. Uh, Those religious Jews who are reading Paul's letter, you can imagine them kind of cheering him on, getting excited. He was calling out the unrighteousness of the pagans. But Paul doesn't stop there. He quickly wants to go forward and show that every person is a sinner. For some, it's just more obvious. Some don't recognize the sinfulness in their own lives. And it's to this group that he now addresses the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2. And remember, when the, when the, when Romans was originally written, there were no chapter breaks. This was a continuation. But less those who were who were seemingly righteous, those who were religious, lest they would think that they themselves are not subject to these things. Paul says in chapter two, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, every one of you who sits in judgment, pointing your finger at the pagans. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them for yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. These first few verses, Paul addresses this sin of self-righteousness. Even God's chosen people were guilty of sin. Even those who choose, who, 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 are, who are seemingly righteous, still deal with the effects of sin. It's easy for them to point their fingers at the pagans and, and to celebrate their own perceived righteousness. And Paul essentially asked them, do you think that by pointing out the sin of others, you're somehow hiding your own sin? You're hiding yourself? You're keeping God from being able to see the sin in your life? Do you think that the sins of others are somehow worse than your own sins? He says, as you're, as you're judging them, you're pointing right back to yourself and you are guilty of these same things. Maybe you've not reached this level of debauchery, but you are, you are guilty of these same issues. As we read this list, we see, we know religious people that are guilty of these things. We even can see in our own personal lives, these same things that creep up from time to time and these same issues that we deal with. So who are we to point our finger at others and think that we can somehow skirt around the, the realities of the, of the sin in our own lives. He says, you think that because of God's kindness that you're going to get away with your sin, that your sin's really not that big of a deal. His kindness, instead of, instead of you thinking that you're getting away with sin, it instead, in, instead of God's patience and, and God's kindness at work in your life and to not zap you immediately, instead of you thinking that that's somehow you getting away, instead his kindness should cause us to despise our sin. It should call us to fall on our face in repentance. As we continue in our own sin, as those that Paul is writing to, the religious here, as they continue in their own sin, ultimately we are putting ourselves in the same position to receive the wrath of God. My brothers and sisters, sin is sin. We could read through these lists. We could look at these different things. And no matter how we categorize sin, any violation of God's perfect law is sin before him. Any effort and any energy of putting ourselves above God, doing what we think is right, doing what is right in our own eyes is sin, and sin will be dealt with. As we look at the last few verses, verses 6 through 11, these verses show us that everyone is in the same position. Ultimately, only those who can perfectly keep God's law are able to escape the wrath of God. And folks, there are none of us that can do that. Those who commit big sins or little sins— by our own definitions, those who are born into good families and those who have absolutely no religious background, those who work hard and those who are lazy, ultimately those who are Jews, those who are Greek, God does not show any partiality. He says that at the end of in verse 11, God shows no partiality. The reality is all of us are guilty of sin. We all have violated God's law. Therefore, every one of us are subject to the wrath and punishment of God. This passage today ends in a pretty hopeless place. <laughs> what great good news, right? We are all sinners, lost and on our way to destruction, on our way to certain wrath. But thankfully, this passage is not the end of the story. We're going to continue over the next few weeks to recognize our sinfulness. But as we recognize our sinfulness, then we will hear that through Christ, God has made a way for our sin problem to be rectified. God has made a way for us to escape the wrath of God.
So as we think through these things today, let me leave you with, with four practical steps real quick. What are practical steps for us to take today? What can we do in light of these things? Number one, let's continue to look to God as the one true God and the only one who is worthy of our worship. Let's continue to look to God as the one true God and the only one who is worthy of our worship. There is no one above him. There is no one like him. There is no one that comes even close. He is the one true God and he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our surrender. He is worthy of our everything. Number two, let's embrace the truth of God's word. Let's embrace the truth of God's word and stand firm upon that truth. Let's embrace the truth of God's word, stand firm upon that truth, even when others reject it and seek to tear it down or redefine it. Let's embrace the truth of God's word and stand firm upon that truth, even when others reject it and seek to tear it down or redefine it. Folks, it's not my truth. It's not your truth. It's not the truth of others around us. It is God's truth that matters. And may we, as a, as a ministry, may we, as, as believers in Christ, may we as individuals, may we stand firm on the truth of God's word. May we not, as Joshua said, may we not turn to the left or to the right, but may we stand firm in, on the truth of God's word. And even when others reject it, others seek to tear it down or redefine it, may we stay true to the word of God. Number three, let's recognize the sin in our own lives that drives us to the need for a savior. Let's recognize the sin in our own lives that drives us to the need for a Savior. May we never get to a point where we think our sin is less important than the sins of others or less dangerous than the sin of others. May we never get comfortable with our sin, but may we recognize the sin in our lives and that drives us to our need for a Savior. We are in desperate need of a Savior. And then number four, let's continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who are lost in their sin. Let's continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who are lost in their sin. You say, well, Chris, he said there that he's given them over and there's no hope for them. You know what? But that's, we don't know who those are. We don't know who that is. Our responsibility and our mandate and our call and our commission is to proclaim the good news of the gospel to all those that we're able to present it to. May we continue to proclaim this good news. May we preach the gospel. May we proclaim the news of salvation to all those who are lost in their sin. May we pray for those to come to faith in Christ. May we pray for those to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus as their Savior. And may we be faithful to continue to be obedient to proclaim the good news. May we proclaim the good news to those that we work with, uh, to those that we engage with on a daily basis, to those children and families that we serve. May we proclaim the good news to our family members. May we proclaim the good news to those who live in our community. Uh, may we just continue to preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who are lost in their sin. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer and let's pray specifically this week for the country of Ukraine. Dear Heavenly Father God, we come before you, uh, Lord, with grateful hearts, grateful for the fact that you don't leave us in our sin, but God, you make it possible for us to have a personal relationship with you through the power of the gospel. God, I pray that we will be faithful to continue to proclaim that good news. And Lord, one place that we are able to continue to proclaim it is in our ministry to Ukraine. Lord, we pray specifically today for uh, this country, Lord, and Lord, as they're dealing with just tremendous effects from 
the recent quarantines and the economic fallout from the pandemic. Uh, Lord, it's affected this country in great ways, and we lift up the families and children specifically that are being affected. We pray for our families that are currently in process to adopt from Ukraine. And we pray, God, that even more families would step up to adopt these older children and sibling groups, Lord, that without a forever family are going to be just turned out on the streets. We pray that the church in Ukraine, God, would would step up and answer the biblical call to care for the most vulnerable in their community. And Lord, that they would not allow cultural prejudice to stop them from being obedient to your call. Lord, we pray for the government of Ukraine, Lord, that their State Department of Adoption would uh, be efficient, that they would do what is right in the right ways, in the right time frames, that they will uh, make adoption and caring for orphan children a priority. Um, Lord, we pray that you would move forward in this process of Ukraine uh, possibly becoming a hate country, that that would just, again, just cause them to elevate their, their systems and efficiency. And so, God, we pray that this would be the case. Um, Lord, we're so grateful for our unadopted partners there in Ukraine, Lord, that are caring for children and preparing them for a life on their own. And so we lift up uh, specifically Madison and Yuri uh, Perakoti, uh, God, that you just would continue to give them strong relationships with a local church, that they would be able to be an extension of local churches, Lord, and caring for orphan and vulnerable children. Uh, we pray, God, also for the Puzinas families, uh, Slavic and Alyana, and uh, we pray, God, that you would give them strength as they conduct uh, camps this summer, Lord, for vulnerable children and uh, children with special needs. We pray that you would provide for them the resources necessary and then also the strength and endurance to, uh, to care for these kiddos in a special way. Lord, we pray for the possibilities around uh, us maybe finding host families for kids, for Ukrainian kids uh, this winter. God, we pray that this program will move forward, that you would, again, just give favor to where it's needed, to where that we could, uh, Lord, just move forward in helping to find forever families for these kiddos. Um, God, we're thankful for uh, just the the many children that have come home uh, from Ukraine over these last 18 years that have found their forever family. We pray for our team at Lifeline that continues to build relationships and serve uh, these children and these families in this in this in this place. Um, we pray, God, for for those in Ukraine that are partners uh, with us that are that are doing the work on that side as well. God, that we pray that you would give them favor and that you would uh, give them put them in front of the right people. And uh, Lord, ultimately, we just we just thank you and praise you for the opportunity to, to really just to make a gospel impact in the lives of, of Ukrainian children and families, and especially during this crazy season that, that we've been encountering in recent months and years. And so, God, we just, again, we're so thankful to be used of you. We're so thankful for the work that you are doing. May we be faithful to walk in obedience to what you've called us to do. And uh, may you, God, shine brightly and may your gospel go forth. In all things, we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study. Music.